did you want to talk about listener feedback? We do have the we I put oh, really? in it, what? Oh really? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know we had any. I put it in Slack. You this is our oh, new boy. procedure. Oh boy. I think it should be a new shtick of ours that you put stuff in Slack and then I pretend <laughs> And then you I pretend, I you, pretend that I'd never said that. <laughs> um this oh. was from listener Tara and she um uh I mean we did receive some I don't think people want to hear us read messages from people like listener Adam telling us, you know, our episode about the Facebook experiment was great. Oh yeah. That's they like listener Adam that. says that, but I don't think people need to hear us read that is, into the record. This is, do after, they? this is after you, you uh, slagged him off last time by say, by again, re- reiterating what a ridiculous idea you thought he had, even though I thought it was marvelous. You know, listen, I, I don't, um, I, I talked about Adam's ideas. I never, I never slagged on Adam cause Adam's great. Yeah. He's awesome. I, I had a problem with an idea. I said it. People have problems with my ideas all the time. They tell me that. Right. I think that's great. Do you know why? I'm not slagging him. I'm slagging right. the idea, Adam, which Adam, was completely Adam, bonkers. Adam, Adam and I already have a kinship resulting from my knowing him yeah, earlier. Right. Um, and, and now I, I think he should feel even even a, a greater bond because we have because he now like i have knows what it's like to be you knows what it's like to be yeah to, to, to have to me be told say, by joe miller yeah that's bonkers yeah yeah yep um, feels awesome doesn't it adam? thank you <laughs> <laughs> thank you listener adam for helping christian feel more more uh, together in the world with other people then there's listener xander who thinks we should do a show on a proportional representation following up on our par- parliament stuff um, I think he's right about that. I think it'd be really fascinating to talk to a political scientist who's expert in parliamentary systems to talk about the differences between the British system and and things that are more like uh, the German proportional representation system and how that... Let's just talk about different modes of democracy. I think that would be really illuminating and really interesting. Don't you? Uh, yeah, I, I think... Let's it, do that. Well, I think I think a show about... Other ways of doing things would be awesome. And, you know, it's funny, as you were saying that, I was thinking about um, how, depending, you know, depending on the framing of it, an issue can sound to listeners who aren't, like, if, if you're in election law, that, immediately you're thinking, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's an issue I want to hear about. Right. If you're not, especially if you're not in law at all, that may sound, oh, proportional representation, it sounds kind of boring, and, you know, but, but the fact is, uh, another way of thinking about it is, uh, Suppose we scrap the entire U.S. election system, Congress, House. So we'll scrap the Constitution and start it over again. What yeah. would be the best way to do that? Right. And w- what better day is there than Constitution Day, on which we're recording yes. this, uh, so to discuss true. scrapping the entire Constitution? Right. We should have had Sandy Levinson on today. Gosh, why didn't we? Because I don't. I don't know why we because didn't. neither of us know him, and why would he ever answer our emails? Hmm. He's Sandy Levinson, after all. He's an institution. Yeah. Is, is that why you don't answer my emails? Because you're an institution. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> I answer your emails. Yeah, you do. I think on this po- on a previous episode, I recommended the book by Danielle Allen called Our Declaration about the Declaration of Independence. Did I, didn't I talk about this book before? We're talking about beautiful legal writing and, and writing that we thought was really interesting. Yeah, as usual. If you recommended something, I've forgotten about it. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Um, but uh, on Constitution Day, even though her yeah. book is about the Declaration of Independence, um, the her beautiful, lyrical, amazing meditation on the Declaration of Independence, Danielle Allen, Our Declaration, uh, it's in the show notes. Um, I think it's, she, she asks basic questions like you just did about what could be better than thinking about, okay, if you were really thinking about how to do this and you, and you decided you wanted to start fresh, what might you do and why? Hmm. It's, it's Fascinating. interesting because we had, uh, 
Yeah, we had Jack Rakove here to, for Constitution Day to speak uh, about history. Did you attend some of history. that? I, I did. I attended the, um, his, uh, his talk. And one of the questions at the end of it, it was about originalism and, uh, and, and history and et cetera. It was very interesting. Uh, one of the questions afterwards from a student was, what role should the Declaration play in interpreting the Constitution? <gasps> I wonder if it was... Do you know what his answer was? I, before you tell me the answer, okay. which I do not know, okay. uh, but you're about to tell us, but I wonder if that student was a student in the major works class that where we read that book, because mm. we talked about that briefly in the in the major works. I don't meeting. think she was a law student, but she might have been. No, okay, well maybe I, I, right. I didn't know her. I mean, it is a, it's. A, I think it's a, a a perfectly natural question uh, and an exciting question. What's to your ask answer about? Yeah, what role should the Declaration, right. its contents, its 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 writing play in the interpretation of our Constitution? Well, I think the most immediate answer, which might sound a little doctrinal and therefore somewhat disappointing, um, but the most immediate answer, I think, is seems you'd give aw- awfully great attention, you'd give very serious attention to the notion that it ought to inform the Ninth Amendment, hmm. uh, that our understanding of rights that haven't been enumerated but that nevertheless exist and as against government power, um, that the declaration is all about that argument about our, uh, our rights as human beings and that including the right to govern oneself, uh, in a community, uh, um, that, uh, that the, the argument, the declaration makes about self-governance, hmm. um, as a right, uh, I think ha- has some real bite maybe in the Ninth Amendment context. Uh, Interesting. So that would be one answer. I guess another answer would be simply as a spirit of self-governance that could inform, and maybe this is more of a John Hart Ely take on the Constitution, that um, you know it's about creating a machine for day-to-day politics and, and helping us govern ourselves. The Constitution or the Declaration? The Constitution. And, and the Declaration and helps you see that how? Because, because it's an argument of, for why self-government is mm. critically important mm-hmm. and, and, and in, in a way, the most important thing there could be. Is it, is it useful in that respect, though? I mean, if you just knew that there was a Declaration of Independence well, I think it and, is. It, and it declared independence from a king, no, would that No, I actually... think it's really important to read it and think through the argument. I mean, I think to, Professor Allen really persuaded me that having a personal encounter as an adult with the argument of the Declaration, tr- slowing your roll, really reading it, really thinking about it, maybe reading her book, because <laughs> it helps you do that, helps you slow down, helps you understand the yeah, argument. I, yeah, I should read this book. I, um, it, you but... know, it, it, it really inform, it can really inform a, a spirited approach to making real for yourself the the way in which the constitution then gives us a set of mechanisms for doing the activity of self-government yeah okay uh so do you know what jack rakov's answer was what was his answer Um, not a damn thing pretty much (laughs) pretty much unless you unless you want to make an argument about natural rights which is of course a a way to say the ninth amendment i guess i mean i'm i i think there are huge problems with the natural rights approach uh we should talk about that on another show maybe we should um because they've made there's a bit of a resurgence of of natural law slash natural rights and an attempt to kind of resituate them in a way that meets famous objections, but uh, right. but and I still don't find it 
compelling. Um, I'm, I'm ready to be educated on that. But so I, I wonder, though, so supposing that you're even that the, that this is correct, um, is the declaration in its writing doing any more than serving as a mantra? Like if I just wrote on a piece of paper, people are equal and should govern themselves. And then you just repeated that to yourself, like, um, 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 it, it, would that be equally no. as compelling? No. Uh, you, you, do you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. And I, well, I feel. In other words, is the content of the dec- declaration important? Yes. Or is it important because it was a statement? No, and, it's, it's, well, I just report, I can just report my experience of reading it with Professor Allen at my shoulder, as it were. And my experience hmm. of reading it, and reading it more deeply than I had ever read it before, I confess, um, is that it really, it really was brought alive for me in a way that was that was deep and that was detailed. And so the specific content of what was being said in various levels of detail, right? So, yeah. in other words, not just a mantra or a shibboleth or, um, you know, a a a, a tweet. You know, right. a, a 140 character version of something. Mm-hmm. Um, no, there's a lot more there than that, and the discipline that it exhibits. I wonder, both if, as an historical artifact right. and as an argument, uh, is there's a lot more. There. I'm not diminishing its role because I'm somebody who thinks that, you know, as the the Constitution is for the living, and yeah, right. that doesn't mean I'm a living constitutionalist, but it means that you know we should drop the idea that we owe duties to dead people. Right. We, we don't. We owe right. duties to one another. And this mm-hmm. is the way fidelity to something is a way that we fulfill those duties, perhaps, to one another. Um, and, and I want it's interesting that you, you talk about in this way. So, so I, I wonder if having a document that is as capaciously possible as the Declaration with these or our Constitution itself with yeah. its appeal to broad principles, the freedom yep. of speech, which doesn't really it, it doesn't. Like the words themselves mean nothing without an understanding, without an audience who's willing to invest in uncovering the meaning of those words over time. Yep. Right. They just, the words are, are in, because the principles are so broad, they're empty. The equal protection clause, we've talked about it before on the show, due process, right? These words, it's possible to spend a lot of time with them and to find meanings. But I think the role of spending a lot of time with these words and the surrounding writings is not to know better what the writings really mean, but it's to decide what we want to do with those kinds of principles, which really means to decide what principles we want to live by. Yeah. And that's why I use the mantra term, right? That it is by, by living, as you mentioned, by kind of living more deeply inside the declaration of independence, you thought differently, right? But I wonder if, I really, I wonder if it's, and I should read the book, but I wonder if it's- But you're saying what I do differently. As opposed to just thinking differently, right? Was it fuel for the mind, or was your, or was your, or, or did you spin fuel to understand the document better? You know what I mean. I do. Like the, the so just having these principles out there can be, and and reading about them and thinking about them can, can can turn the mind to solving contemporary problems and to refining principles in a way to solve contemporary problems based on an understanding of the past and based on beautiful, succinct language that, that turns the mind toward important, enduring ideas, mm-hmm. reminding you of things you might otherwise forget. 
One thing that the Declaration develops at length is the um, an argument about changing the form of government, changing your form of government, changing right. a relationship between um, one uh, between a group of people and a former ruler, mm-hmm. deciding you're my former ruler, not my current ruler. Right, and that is, I think, a very uh, that's a that that's a challenge that is present in many places at many times, including now for many people. And so that's a, just an example of how it can be not not merely uh, thoughts, but it help shape actions, help shape your understanding of actions, and just how just how heavy and large a burden it would be. To try to demonstrate across us, if, if you look at the Declaration as a model for doing this, right? Um, how deep and how broad the polity would need to have persuaded itself that this change was necessary mm-hmm. for it to be warranted. Right. Um, it's it's not a fifty. It's not a fifty percent plus one thing. Right. right. It's not a flash in the pan. Um, it's a deep broad multi-year consensus in the face of a great many difficulties reluctantly arrived at hmm. and it makes a very particular argument and and is a, an example of a of a quite specific approach to changing uh, the body politic in this dramatic way wow her book what? is just so amazing it's so provocative um, she's like become kind of a hero for me because she's she writes so beautifully, so clearly, so thoughtfully. I've never achieved anything approaching the the Whoa. the excellence of this book. Whoa! Um, have you thought? I about, probably we never will. Can, hmm? we, can we get her on the show? I don't. I don't know that I'd be able to speak. <laughs> <laughs> I d- 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 oh boy! Yeah, I, I just. You know, I, I, I feel so much for you that I have let three possible insults that flashed in my head go by without, without <laughs> well, thank you. them. Yeah. Uh, I'm feeling um, a little vulnerable right now. I, so. I, I could see that, and that's why I held my powder dry. I appreciate that. And um, You're a good friend. Well, I haven't, I haven't felt in the presence of such passion since uh, watching the uh, Republican debate last night. Oh, my. <laughs> Oi. <laughs> Professor Allen, he's sorry. <laughs> he didn't mean to do that. Oh boy, I'm a jackass. Uh, anyway, wh- where else do we have to go? We have another bit of feedback, don't we? Well, we have another listener email. Um, Excellent. The purpose of law and punishment. An email from from listener Tara, uh, who just graduated in December and and is very interested in how the criminal law works and has some really fun ideas about uh, about how we could be more disciplined about deciding what to criminalize and how to punish it. And she's very skeptical of, of retribution or revenge as a proper basis for deciding how to punish a crime. Yeah. I I look at this and she, she just graduated. She hasn't been to law school, but she says this, I personally see two problems with today's criminal system. One, we make too many things illegal Two, We don't make clear our purposes for punishments. Wow. Yeah. Right. We were just uh, actually slicing right through. I was on a panel today uh, for Constitution Day. Yeah, and and this very issue came up. Right, Um, there are too many things are illegal. Why is that? Yeah, whose interest is that? I mean, uh, very very interesting. So so very perceptive. I mean, this is, and I shouldn't. I don't mean to sound surprised by that, but it's but because I'm because I'm not surprised. I meet perceptive young people all the time. It's one of the great joys of being a teacher. 
Um, but, but and we you, do have the most attractive and intelligent audience in all of podcastum. Well, the, of course. Right. Um, but th- so, yeah, this email is just really wonderful and, and gives us all kinds of things to think about and talk about, uh, I think, in future episodes. We, she's very much on our beam in terms of thinking about questions and trying to th- come up with creative ideas for how would you, how would you approach, for example, the question of determining punishments in a more a thoughtful, intentional way. Let me give a specific here from her email. Uh, she says, um, uh, and then when applying laws, we should show this purpose, the purpose that we've decided is behind the law. Just as any organization needs a purpose from a company to a 501c3, which must have a purpose and show how it is acting for that purpose. Uh, she's exactly right. Uh, when assigning punishments, judges should declare the purpose and create a goals list which would benefit parole review boards and such, which could be used to assess the person's path of rehabilitation. Uh, I, and, and then she goes on, I've given you a lot to think about. But, um, but that's, that's someone who's thinking about, like, how can we hack the system to work better? Right. I love it. I love it. Anyway, there's a lot in this email. That and as can, you said, not just thoughts, but actions. Like, yeah. how, how, would it, how would you act differently in the world if you were trying to do better on this dimension? Right. And like, that's, I th- we mentioned this, I don't know. Totally maybe, cool. Maybe this was episode zero. I don't even know when it was, but, but this idea that it can, all, this idea that it can, all, that it can all be changed. That's a, you know, the, if I could, if I could do one thing with entering law students, um, in addition to focusing on writing. Yeah. Right. It would be to free the, you know, to help them realize that when we talk, like imagine it can all be changed. What's the best way to do this? Yep. And then we, then we can talk about, like, there's a whole science of second best and third best, yeah. right? Because that's, we need, we need to do that sometimes. You know, we, Here's an important yeah. thing, though. I, because I believe, what, I, I agree with you. I want that and I believe that. Shocker. I mean, I, I'm edit the show, so I'm going to, I'm just going to cut that out <laughs> and I'm just going <laughs> to. That's our dro- new theme song. I'm just going to drop it in. Right. Whenever you <laughs> want. Whenever I want it's it. It's one of those buttons you can just yeah, hit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I agree with you. Boom. 100%. Boom. There it is. <laughs> In addition. This is about upstream color, right? I'm concerned about <laughs> the idea that people might want to talk about how to make things different before they've fully or at least greatly mastered how they are. Right. I, I want the, yeah, I want yeah, the discussion. Yeah, yeah. I ultimately want the, in terms of training professionals, right. I ultimately want the discussion about how things might be improved to be rooted in a sense of how they are. Well, that's apropos of the discussion uh, that I think we're about to have with our guest yes. uh, about the state of international law. But, yeah. um, but I think that's right. I mean, you, you know, there's both the facts and the state of the law are right. things you need to, you know, if it can all be changed, you have to know from what it is being changed. Yeah. It's not enough to know what you want. And why right? those changes are better. And, and it's more meaningful in that sense. I mean, when, so, so if, you look at, um, if you look at a Picasso and it's a, a, some great cubist work, I think Picasso is painting that not because he cannot paint many of the styles of painting that came before and do it excellently. He's not mm-hmm. doing that instead of. He's doing that because he's already moved past that was like, fine, you want another Mona Lisa? Fine. I can do that. Really? I don't want to do it. I hmm. can do it. I don't want to. Hmm. Right? Uh, you want another Sistine Chapel? Whatever. I could do that. I don't want to do that. I want to do this. Right? It's almost like you're channeling my thoughts, Joe. That's so cool. I, that's, why I'm, that's why I'm a law professor. Sistine Chapel's already been painted. They don't need another guy to do that. 
I could have done that. But. <laughs> oh. Have you seen my drawing, actually? No. I have to copy stick figures from Wikipedia. I want to I see <laughs> yeah. the, the painting of the person yes. who is completely capable of doing that, but has decided there's something more interesting because it's today and not yesterday. I agree. I will make an amendment, though. Which is about mastery and yeah. then moving beyond mastery. I, I agree. You don't like that mastery No, I, I do. I, no, I, I could, very I much like the mastery. I, do, I very much do like the mastery point. I, I don't necessarily think that it is necessary completely to master everything that's come before. Oh, not everything, like, of course not. If, if, if I found out that Picasso could not have painted the Mona, it wasn't trained in the classical techniques of, of depth and everything. If I found all that, I would still think his paintings were amazing, right? Because it's, it's doing something different, right? It, sees, it helps you see a different side. Yeah, so no, that's true. I, 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 that, object, that, you're right. I object a little bit to this kind of notion of human progression. Like, you know, that we're constantly leveling up. I, it's I, not, a I pro- it's, yeah. it's not, I wasn't making, I don't think I was making a progression point, although you're, you're, you're right to say, you know, in a way, isn't it BS to say, you, like, maybe I'm diminishing the, the sublime experience of the, of his aesthetic achievement, which exists in itself in the painting to say, oh, well, but it's because I know that he could do these other things. That's a fair point. Um, and, and maybe if he couldn't do those other things, Maybe it's not, maybe it doesn't matter. But yeah. to me, I feel like it deepens my appreciation for certain things to know that the person transcended everything that had come before right. and that's how they arrived at this thing. It's like, oh my gosh, it really, it really is just sort of ultimate new level of experience. Right. Well, transcendence is more than comment. I don't want to, yeah, you said it better than I did. I think that's right. But you can't deny that a painting as a, as a thing you experience, as a single thing you experience, it, it is its own aesthetic reality as well. I mean, it's right. so the fact that that painter couldn't have painted other things, who cares? They painted this beautiful thing. That's what I'm saying, yeah. You know, that's true too. Did um, something very important happen this week? Oh. Did you know this? Did no. you see this? No. Maybe not. I don't know. What is it? <sighs> I had a tweet come at me. <laughs> oh boy! You, are, I thought you said this was important, and then you say Twitter. Oh my gosh, uh, Joe! Let me ask you a question. So you had a tweet? I come at me. Someone threw a tweet Someone at your threw head. A tweet at me. Oh yeah, this was this was. I wouldn't say throw it in my head. It's more like Cupid's arrow. Are you familiar with the film Upstream Color? I am. Because you've seen it? No. Oh boy. Well, you know, I think it's one of the greatest movies ever made. Yes. That and Shutter Island and a few others, right? But uh, but but. Truly one of the greats. And okay. I, 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 it was sticking in my head this week. You're, you're Upstream looking, color was sticking in your head. Yeah, and there's one scene from it, and I tweeted that about the scene. I just can't... Uh, okay. It's a scene where she looks up into the... And the main character looks up into the eyes of, an, of another character, and it's, it's meaningful for a particular reason. It's, just okay. a, it's, a, it's a moment which captures so much. And I got a tweet responding saying, you know, exactly, that's my favorite part of the film... It says more in that instant than many films say in 90 minutes. And it was signed, uh, the sampler, who is the character in that film. It came from the guy who played that guy. No. Yes. Yes. No. And he was so great in that movie. No. Yes. <laughs> so who, who here is second degree famous and awesome now? This guy. Yeah. This guy, you know what I mean? He's pointing at himself. People. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, FYI. 
Isn't that awesome? That's so cool. This is the Twitter is the great leveler. Because I'm sure he's thrilled that people are like, he, he, to be fair, he, he may have thought that I just finished watching the movie. Right. He probably didn't know that the last time I saw it was like a year and a half ago. But it's still. And it's still going through my head. And I'm still, still thinking about it all the time. And, and, I, and I'm so compelled at certain moments and thinking about it that I, that I tweeted out. How yeah. awesome, if you worked on that, how awesome would it be that there's somebody out there who. Yeah, it would feel great. It would feel great. And, on the, and for me, it feels great to know that, that, I, that, that I put that out there for him. What a world. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is great. Yeah, exactly. What else we got going on this week? Sometimes I write thank you notes to people who I'll, I, I read an article. It's not someone I know, mm-hmm. uh, but I read the article and I really, really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And I really benefit from it. It's, right. it. It has helped me think more clearly or in a different way about something that I that is important to me. Um, and I try to write a thank you note to that person. Most people don't answer back. Mm hmm. Um, because they probably think it's a little creepy or a little stalkerish, <laughs> um, but I I do I write a thank you note. I'll just say yeah. you know, dear Professor So and So, I I read this piece and it's and I try to say a little bit about why I, it has it meant something to me. It helped me think about X better, or um, it was beautifully expressed, and I really appreciate how much effort you must have put into that. Uh, and I'll just so I just send thank you notes because I feel huh. like you know it would be great to get one of those notes. I imagine it would be. I I, and, I, I can and, only ima- and, and I can they, only imagine that. It would and be the nice person to get really one. did do something that really helped me, and and yeah. and I really am thankful. Yeah. So why not tell them? Yeah. Why not? I think there's a there's a there's something to generalize from that for okay. for for our listeners. Okay. How awesome would it be? Just you know, if someone does something and you think it's good, you know, in your own line of work, you're an attorney, whatever else. Even if it's can, if you're an opposing counsel. And and the the counsel on the opposite side writes a brief that you think is really well done. Is it beyond the ethics of professional conduct just to send a note saying, "I thought you did a great job"? You really, yeah, you should do that. Is that unethical? No, especially not after the case is over. After the case is over, you think? Maybe. Yeah, we should do this more in real life, though, right? Tell other people, man, you did a good job. Yeah, when you really mean this sounds like, oh my God, the worst saccharine, you know, office poster kitten picture BS. But mm-hmm. but the the reason those things exist is because they're capturing something true. Exactly. Um, which is how wonderful it is to say human being to human being, that really means something to me and thank you. Yeah, those words that, you know, there's an air gap between our brains. You know what I mean? An air gap? Yeah. That's what they call it when like computers are segregated. Okay. You know, off, off grid, they, they're there, you know, there's an air gap. Okay. There's no wire connecting them. Right. Which is why it was so cool. That thing, you know, we talked about this on a prior show. Those, uh, those, uh, um, it's not exactly a virus, but those things which could actually through ultrasonic frequencies infect computers, even with an air gap. Oh. It had to have been something. It's more complicated than that, but how cool. Right. But, yeah. but like between all of us, there's an air gap. And it's this, it's this flapping of the jaws and mouth or the clickety-clack of fingers on a keyboard. Right, where you can reach across that. It breaks the air gap, yeah. Yep. Yeah, well, speaking of breaking the air gap, should we, I guess we should uh, get our guest on the line. We should. Let's do it. So we got Mary Ellen O'Connell with us today. You do. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, and, and I think we're going to, 
What are we going to talk about today, Joe? Determinism and criminal law? What are we talking? <laughs> no. no. Are we talk- what is um, it? Well, this all this all started. We we got uh, introduced to Mary Ellen's work because of the conversation we had with Frank Pasquale about drones, and mm-hmm. we were talking about drones principally in domestic stuff, like here in the U.S. and hobbyists using drones to, you know, film. Uh, things outside and travel across their town or something like that. And then autonomous drones with like driverless cars and things. Yeah, we were talking about uh, driverless cars and and uh, and Frank suggested in the midst of all that that we definitely needed to talk to Mary Ellen. So, of course, we reached out to her and that's why we're here. And we're going to talk about uh, now. Now, Mary Ellen, your specialty is is international law, right? That's right. And a subspecialty within international law is the international law regulating the use or the resort to armed force. And so you had a recent, uh, I've read a couple of, of your things. You had a really, uh, a recent article on that basically surveyed four different areas of, um, I don't know, provocation or types of, of force. And, 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 and the, 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 the jumping off point of the article was that maybe people are giving diplomacy more of a chance. And if so, we need international law to be ready to mediate these conflicts, whether it come whether it's uh, Stuxnet not like uh, cyber attacks or um, biological attacks, nuclear nonproliferation, what have you. Um, well, I take a slightly different perspective. You're, you're basically on track, but the real point is in the article, or my perspective is that international law is ready. Um, there's a lot of misinformation or lack of information leading to a perception that international law is not ready and therefore the U.S. is free or other countries are free to both develop and deploy weapons um, as if there was no sense of law and legal parameters on what they do, a sort of Wild West when (laughs) it comes to developing new weapons. And that's not the case. And in fact, if we take that view, we um, certainly in the U.S. and other countries will be helping create a far less secure world, not more secure world. And you show, you show in there, you, you argue that there are a number of points where uh, d- diplomacy kind of in its, you know, I'm using the term very casually here, uh, might have worked better at achieving certain results than a direct use of, of force. And and I take it you're you're talking about kind of diplomacy in a framework of international law that you say we're, we we have we're ready for. You know what is it that keeps us from or that makes other people say that it's not ready? What, why are there why is there anyone on the other side suggesting that international law is either inadequate to the task or not fully specified or or what have you? Let me just point to two um, types of weapons developments where we're hearing rather frequently and and in high-profile publications and presentations that there's no international law or that the international law we have is inadequate. And um, that's with regard to cyber weapons, so-called cyber weapons and um, uh, unmanned or um, uh, remotely piloted weapons, the drone and other kinds of remotely piloted vehicles. And some, to a certain extent, also people are saying this, although it's very ma- premature, um, in the new developments in robotics toward fully autonomous robotic weapons. So these are the the three areas where people will say we just don't have any international law. We have to make it up as we go along, and um, 
And the rules that they propose inevitably when they start from the position that there is no international law is, guess what, lots of freedom to develop and use these new weapons and weapons systems if you're the U.S., but not so much if you're China or the Islamic State or um, other parties. And, of course, a legal system that's designed for the entire global community can't work on a basis that some countries get special rules for them and other countries don't. So it's a very good thing we actually have law. Now, I understand where people are coming from who are U.S. domestic lawyers. Many of the lawyers working, for example, in the, at the CIA or the National Security Agency or even in the Pentagon don't have much background in international law. Many of the people advising the president in the White House, his team of lawyers or lawyers with the National Security Council, don't have much background in international law. And they more or less are often just um, concluding from deduction from the point that the technology is new and they're somehow deducing the answer that that means there's no international law to regulate it. Um, and that's a very curious deduction because if you think about domestic law, criminal law, so forth, within the U.S., we have lots of ways to ensure that there are no gaps in the law. So people come up with new forms of crime all the time. The internet produces new types of criminal activity, but we've got a whole body of existing criminal law, constitutional protections, basic norms and principles, working by analogy. We analogize in the internet area, of course, a lot to telephone and other um, communications means that are maybe not as sophisticated, but give us a basis to reason forward and make sure the law is fully um, uh, in place. And, and of course, it's an, an even greater failure to understand the nature of these weapons if you think that they're entirely new, because weapons, like most human activity, are incremental developments. We've had computers associated with our military activity in the U.S. since the Second World War. That's when we started developing computers. And so uh, we've had incremental developments. The, the drone itself, the unmanned area vehicle, was developed either in or, or, or shortly thereafter the Second World War. So um, while the weaponizing of the drone only occurred in uh, the late 90s, and the first use to kill someone with a weaponized drone occurred in 2001, that those were still incremental changes. The rules in international law about the use of weapons don't rely on the technology of the weapon. They rely on the status of the people you're targeting. Yeah, well, let, let me go back to the uh, domestic example, um, which is what we know best, I think, Joe and me. Um, <clears throat> uh, but... Uh, you, you know, the way that it works, uh, the, the way that law typically works with respect to evolving technologies and new kinds of harms is that uh, is, as you mentioned, like by analogy, et cetera, but also at the stage of, of drafting or the stage of uh, of announcing a rule, if it's the common law, you know, the, the law will speak in uh, at, to, to a category, to a level of uh, at a level of generality which has in mind that there could be changes in the future, you know? And so the, the, the moment a legal rule is pronounced, it's, it's, it, it's in a sense, it's pregnant with implications for, for the future. Um, but 
it may occur that things will change radically enough that to apply that law by analogy to the new situation is, you know, it's kind of like a bull in a china shop, right? Where suddenly all the purposes for which the earlier law is drawn, the careful balances that it made based on the kinds of harms it anticipated, like those are all different now with this new technology. I'm trying to think of a good example for this, Joe. Maybe you've got one with intellectual property, but... Yeah, well, copyright, it's certainly the case that a lot of copyright law was written and thought through in a context where there was no global network of digital computing. Right. Uh, And so when you take copyright, conventional copyright thinking, where the making of a copy, for example, is so critically important to appreciating how the law is supposed to work. Right. Well, in a global computing network, there are millions of copies being generated instantaneously for computing reasons that don't have any of the same implications that they would if I were building a printing press to make copies of a book in competition with your book. That's a good example um, to come back to weapons because copyright law is international law too. So this is not talking about just the US case. And we haven't and nobody walks around saying there's no law of copyright for the new technology. They know that we have the tools to uh, work from existing law to reason through how that should be adapted to ensure that there's coverage based on the principle that we've all agreed to in the original law, whether you're looking to the Berne Convention for its statement of how copyright should be protected globally. And it's the same with weapons technology. So we've, we've got plenty of good law and um, we can understand how it should be reasoned through for the new developments, the truly new things. On the other hand, as I said, we don't really regulate weapons based on the technology. We regulate them on how they're being used, and that has not changed since time immemorial. You can target enemy fighters on a battlefield. You can't target civilians. That's the core way that you can use lawfully or unlawfully your weapons. And then the rule of proportionality puts a major limit on, for example, that it would never be lawful to use a nuclear weapon. Let, let me go back to an example, uh, one more example in domestic law, maybe at the other end to show um, some some of the problem with applying old, you know, teaching an old dog new tricks kind of thing. And and then we'll then maybe we can think about um, about weapons again uh, in 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 a context where it's less obvious to me that we have an agreed upon principle. So. So in the domestic context, and we talked about this before in the show, uh, this is uh, the trespass law and the invention of the airplane is is a classic example where you've got this law that works pretty well uh, for if you want to enforce uh, property rights and, and geographic-based land rights uh, that, you know, if, if you intentionally go onto the property of another, uh, you don't have to intend to violate the rights. But if you move onto that space, it's a trespass. And then there are these exceptions and you can come up with hard cases. And then the airplane comes along. And the airplane overflies uh, your property. And you say, well, maybe one, a- one answer to this problem is that um, if you fly at a high enough altitude, it's not really your property anymore. Uh, but the law had always been from, you know, heaven to hell, right? The ad suellum doctrine that you own. If you own the surface, you own everything above and you own everything below. And you get these early cases. Um, the Henman case, I think out of the Ninth Circuit is the one we've talked about before, where the court says, yeah, that doesn't, not really. (laughs) You own the surface (laughs) rights and you own whatever above the surface that you're actually using. So they kind of turn your above surface rights into uh, what property law would call a a usufruct, right? An ability to kind of keep using 
the property. Or it's not quite that. It's more like you actually own it in a physical sense so long as you can use it and you have a prior kind of right to be able to convert it to use. I think that I convert it to ownership. but And that the looser statement dates from a time when, well, of course, people talked about going all the way up to the sky because no one was up in the sky right. except for the occasional hot air balloon guy in France. But there could be new I mean, kinds. Who cares, of, exactly. Right? There could be new kinds of carts. There could be new kinds of uh, – uh, new organizations of people marching through the taller uh, buildings, yeah, all kinds of things that, that that weren't around at the time, but where the principle of exclusion, strict exclusion, um, would make sense. Made sense in the new thing, right? But, but when then the, the airplane, airplane comes really along, that. Yeah. because you you if if you have a strict uh, exclusion rule, a trespass, you just won't be able to have airplanes because they won't be. You know, you have to have some dramatic, broad licensing regime, which basically converts everything into something other than. Uh, the the kind of strong uh, property trespass. So, so how would we know if an unmanned aerial aerial uh, weapon? How would we know if that was like the invention of the airplane and testing these traditional legal principles? Well, what I wanted to ask Mary Ellen about was was not the UAV, although we could go there. Okay. Was the is the Stuxnet type stuff? These so are the cyber attacks. The cyber attacks which have physical effects. So it's a you know a, a virus that you unleash which is intended not just to take over a computer to hijack computing resources, but which will have an effect in the world by, say, spinning centrifuges way too fast and breaking the machines or maybe even disabling a dam or electrical systems or right, what have right. you. Um, so the, the question is, we, we have, you know, I, I, Mary Ellen, I, I think you're, you, you know, from my, you know, I don't know much about this, but it seems like you're exactly right that there are, there are, there is law already there that speaks to broad categories into which this kind of thing fits. The question is, the when that law is addressed to that broad category, it does so based on a certain principle. And is it the case that with all of these new kinds of weapon systems or attacks, that that original principle is is still there? In other words, does that principle speak sensibly to the new case? Whereas, you know, with the airplane, the principle of trespass didn't speak sensibly to that new development, but it did speak sensibly to all kinds of other developments that had occurred. Do you understand? Do you get the drift of what I'm trying to get at? Yes, I mean, you're repeating an argument that is often heard by people who um, are thinking about um, new technology in the weapons area for the first time without a context of international law to take to it. So it's a, a perfectly understandable question, and it's one that plenty of people have for very good reason. So let's take the Stuxnet, and I'll just give a brief description of that for those of your listeners who are not familiar with it. In 2009-2010, the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, noticed that the centrifuges in Iran at its, some of its nuclear sites were spinning much faster than they were designed to spin. And these, through the efforts of certain um, private internet security companies, came to be understood to have been caused by a worm, an internet worm. Um, and eventually we even now know that this worm was introduced through um, a thumb drive into the Iranian um, computers that were controlling the spinning centrifuges. A little bit of, of damage was done to the machines operating the centrifuges and the centrifuges. It took a couple months to get everything exactly back where it was before. Uh, in the meantime, not just the Iranian computers were affected, but um, in fact, 40% uh, of the computers 
affected by the Stuxnet worm were outside of Iran. Oops. <laughs> yeah, the Iranians were able to reverse engineer that worm, and now they have it available, and um, it's not known if they've used it. Um, there's some hint that they've used something like that against the Saudis. Um, but it is very well known that the United States and Iran and Israel took credit. Their politicians denied having released the Stuxnet worm, but said it was a great new invention and they were so happy it happened and blah, blah. Um, and we have pretty good information from a number of the top internet security companies that the fingerprints of the U.S. and Israel are all over the Stuxnet. So was it perfectly fine for the U.S. and Israel if they were the ones who released this um, worm to do that? I mean, everyone knows that Iran, from the current negotiations over the Iran nuclear program, which we can talk about also today as a new weapons area, um, at any rate, we know that Iran has been under Security Council mandate to not only keep its obligations under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, but go beyond those and meet some demands by the Security Council. And the Security Council has put Iran under heavy economic sanctions until they meet those additional obligations. Um, the U.S. and the European Union independently put additional sanctions on Iran, questionable, but so, but at least all these actions give an indication that Iran has been doing something in violation of its international law obligations with regard to its nuclear weapons program. Does that give the U.S. and Israel the right to release a damaging worm into the internet with the aim of doing some damage, some short-term damage to Iran? Uh, no. And 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 why do I say that with so much certainty? Isn't this a new development? How can there be any law about internet worms when the internet is from the 1980s and this worm was developed in 2009, 2010? So how could there be law for the worm? Well, there's plenty of law about the proper use of coercion and coercive tactics. Now, I don't describe the Stuxnet as a, um, well, you can say it was a weapon. It has, the internet is much better analogized to other forms of economic activity and communications activity and not so much a battlefield. And what the Stuxnet really did was cause some economic difficulties for Iran. It didn't really do the kind of damage you would uh, expect, you know, that, that would happen from a conventional bombing. Um, but we know in international law, whether it was an actual weapon that attacked and did some harm or a, an economic um, injury of a less tangible kind, we do know that states are not allowed to carry out that kind of coercive action against another state. Um, when the states themselves have not been injured in a way that we recognize in international law. So Israel and the U.S. have had some threats and some ugly language, but nothing that international law would allow that kind of a damaging attack from them on, Israel, on Iran. And I assume that's why neither country have claimed that they and, and owned up to doing this. It was done clandestinely, and they hoped 
to have deniability that they did it. This is particularly clearly unlawful because this whole issue of um, nuclear proliferation control, which is fundamentally under a treaty, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, says in that treaty that it will be for the Security Council to handle cases of countries that are not complying with the treaty. And the Security Council itself has plenty of means to control um, and to enforce its own mandates and the mandates of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And they've done that through economic um, sanctions, which have done uh, obviously worked quite well to bring Iran to the negotiating table as they did um, as they came in July and signed this new agreement. So the U.S. and Israel clearly, without any doubt, I haven't heard anyone say that in this context they had any right to do what they did. They violated the law. They injured Iran outside the parameters of the international law regulating enforcement of legal rights and responsibilities. So as as long as there's an injury resulting. Well, let me ask you this. What what turns on whether this is, uh, forget a second whether it was legal, let's assume it was illegal, but but what what would be different if it were classified, the deployment of a worm like Stuxnet were classified as uh, as an economic attack or economic um, sabotage versus a traditional attack? What turns yeah, on that? I like to say that um, we should be thinking of the internet as economic and communication space because I don't want Stuxnet's happening in the future. I think this was a, 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 a hugely wrong-headed um, thing for the U.S. and Israel to do, not just because there's a straight-up violation of international law, but with regard to keeping the internet usable for the rest of the world going forward, countries really shouldn't think of it as a place where they can uh, injure their opponents. Yeah, but right, right. My question, though, is, is it, is it, is there something about, and I, I just don't know it, uh, is it, is there a justification or is there, are there allowable circumstances to engage in this kind of economic attack that you wouldn't, uh, that, that wouldn't uh, um, qualify for a, um, for a physical attack or a traditional weapons attack? I'm, I'm just wondering what turns on the classification if this is an economic thing. One of the, re- one of the reasons why it's important to characterize it correctly is what is, so Iran is the victim of this unlawful Stuxnet worm. What is Iran's right in return? Some of the people who are writing without a basis of knowledge in international law about um, cyberspace, they would say if it was reversed, if it was Iran releasing a, uh, the Stuxnet on the U.S., they would say the U.S. has the right to use conventional military force to bomb Iran because it has, quote unquote, attacked us. You're hearing this kind of inflammatory statements about Chinese hacking into the U.S. and so on. Nothing of the kind. So if you flip it, they never would say, well, Iran was the victim of the Stuxnet. It gets to bomb the U.S. or Israel to retaliate for this unlawful injury to it. As soon as you you turn it around and it's not from the perspective of the speaker and his national security interests, I think we can see clearly the problem here. In fact, Iran was not the victim of an armed attack through this Stuxnet. It was the victim of a, an economic injury, and it would have the right to take countermeasures in reverse against the U.S., such as freezing U.S. Um, assets that are available. 
they Iran actually tried to take this and other kinds of related questions to the Iran U.S. Claims Tribunal, hmm. where we've been at work for 20 years <laughs> sorting out economic claims that arose after the uh, Iranian revolution in 1979. Yeah, so two two quick things just to tease that out. So so if um if the US had broken these centrifuges by sending in agents and smashing them and then leaving the country, uh, same same result is that an economic attack and then secondly, uh if the Stuxnet worm instead of breaking centrifuges had um broken a dam and uh, or open floodgates on a dam and and people had died is that the same is that also an economic so i take it it's not just the fact that it's a computer virus but it's what you or, or a computer worm but it's what you do with it um can you tease those two out for me yeah that's a that's an interesting set of propositions um once you have people physically there of course they're subject to arrest and so forth so there are other crimes related to the the physical um, entering in and destruction of the property, um, it would be a very risky thing to do. And that's something I thought we were going to talk about is uh, why there's so much interest in considering the world of of computers and new weapons development as a Wild West, because there are lots of things that apparently the U.S., our past two presidents, our current one and our past one, have wanted to do, um, which they would never expose U.S. ground personnel or even um, CIA operatives to do. So um, we do believe there's a distinction when you infiltrated your own people. Um, that's so much more clearly seen as illegal and subject to those people being arrested or killed in the process of doing that kind of damage. So there is something of a qualitative difference to doing something over the Internet versus um uh, through human processes. And you had another question. Right? Yeah, no, no. I mean, first of all, I think, you know, that, 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 what you just said gets at this thing that we started off with in a way, right? Is that can there be, you know, if it's qualitatively different, is the law that's already there and its principles, is it pro- properly addressed to it? But the, the second thing, just to remind you, different, but that means you have to be careful which legal categories you're looking at. It's not, again, it's not that there's no law it's it's that there's insufficient knowledge of what international law requires. Right. Right. I, I, yeah. I, I, well, the second one was... Two cases are different, but it's not that there's no law. The qualitative difference sends you to a different body of law. Right. And, and uh, ex- exactly. And that's... Um, hmm. We, maybe we can get back to this because this is an interesting philosophical question, even about domestic law. I'm not one who thinks that domestic law is real and international law is not real. I'm not coming at it from that perspective. I am coming at it from a perspective of skepticism about both realms, though, to some degree. And the way that the way that law is, in fact, made. This is a qualitative difference that you and I are having. It's a difference of degree because you're also saying that we live in a whole world of law, even domestically. And when new situations come up, we don't throw up our hands and say there's no law. We may want some legislation to more properly or in more detail fit a particular situation, but the courts, if they have a case and there's no new legislation and they do see new aspects, they use analogy, they reason through from policy positions, and they're able to decide cases. So you may be saying that new technology developments need detailed treaties to make it clear to everyone, especially in a condition of ignorance, or we may need statutory legislation to provide more details on the bones of the common law or 
um, constitutional principles that are quite open. And I agree with you there. We might just be disagreeing on how, because I come from international law where it's very hard to develop. <laughs> right. So we rely much more on these non-treaty sources. Yeah, I can tell you exactly. I mean, where I'm coming from, let's suppose now, and it's more complicated than this, but let's just take the Holmesian perspective and just assume this for a second. that, that law, to, I never <clears throat> No, well, just that law is – just imagine that law is uh, – Maybe you disagree with this. Hopefully we'll agree with this starting point. But but that law is basically a prediction of what judges will do. It's basically exactly what you just said, right? That that law is in the doing. And so if we get a new dispute coming to us uh, and uh, we've got statute A that kind of fits and common law B that kind of fits, but you know, the, the, the court will draw some analogies and will do something based on those legal data and that there will be a resolution. And in the resolving, in that resolving, we have something that uh, that is the law. And I guess if I had to um, to state what I'm trying to tease out here and just be, from a position of ignorance more than anything else is it seems to me that's much harder to do in international law because of the problem of identifying authority and of the penchant for states, especially powerful states, to ignore international law when it suits them. You know, the problem that you started off uh, talking about. Uh, yeah. So that, that mechanism, that Holmesian mechanism for judges to to basically do new things based on new data, but where those new things are, we don't, we don't say it's not the law. We just say that what the law is, is the synthesis of all of these other materials. And, and that, that works in domestic law because people agree that judges have authority and have agreed to yield that authority to judges when they are able to reach basically acceptable results and cite an acceptable corpus of material. That seems to be a much harder problem in international law. And so I would expect there would be more resistance to fitting new categories of harms and new into kind of older categories because it's just harder to maybe update. I don't know if that makes sense. And let me just tell you, just to tease up the second hypothetical that I'd mentioned, because uh, maybe it will shed some light here in in, in Is this opening response. the dam? Or this is, yeah, this is the Stuxnet worm that opens the dam and results in the deaths of some people. Um, n- not on the order of a crime against humanity, say. I, I don't know what that would be, but 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 that causes physical human harm, and there may have even been an intention to do that. So not breaking centrifuges, but breaking dams. Uh, so anyway, I, I don't know how you want to deal with that, Mary Ellen, or if, if you agree with my Holmesian perspective or, or no, not. No, I, I, I really don't agree with the Holmesian perspective. I'm, um, I teach the law of contracts, too, so I, I just taught the Holmes perspective. And contrasted it with Hart and Fuller and um, all those people who came later and saw the world of law as much richer and more complete and certainly not what courts say. I mean, if you just take the Supreme Court and what it's able to say, um, so few decisions compared to all the thousands of cases that people would like to get into the courts and are prevented from doing so because of cost or the sheer practicality of getting a decision into the Supreme Court. I, th- I think Holmes's view was never right, but it couldn't be farther from wrong today. In fact, um, it's, it's another area where people don't seem to understand international law, that today there are over 100 international courts. They're hearing plenty of cases. So the output is, you could say it's comparable to the U.S. Supreme Court with regard to decisions within the U.S. It's a small amount. It's having some marginal beneficial impact on the law, but it's not. In, it's, it's that. It's a small impact on this whole world of law. The international community, in a sense, can much more easily police itself, make its law, 
see what's going on. If you consider that the main players are 193 sovereign states, that's it. They keep very careful track of each other, much careful, much more careful track than the 300 million Americans can keep of each other. We, especially in areas like use of force or injuring other sovereign states, there's plenty of information. And what we tend to have is so much focus on these international injuries that states do to each other that skews our sense of what the international legal system is really accomplishing because we focus on those high level, very important issues such as the Stuxnet worm or the Iranian nuclear program or Chinese hacking. And we're not focused on the 7 billion people who live on the planet and are able to fly to different countries. And by the way, international law says that you can, a sovereign state can own the airspace up to a limit, which is generally thought to be orbit. So you don't get everything up to the moon and beyond, <laughs> um, according to international law. But all those kinds of unending rules, this competition for the Arctic, that's all going forward under international law rules. There's so much of it. And, um, and, and I would just challenge everyone in the United States, especially in areas like criminal law or intellectual property to know much more about how the basic system works as well as the detailed rules. So I, I don't share the view that international law is somehow weaker or less able to adapt with the times. In a lot of ways, it's much more able to adapt. And um, there, are, there are courts available. There are good ways of resolving disputes through arbitration, through litigation. And um, I'm one who's been long arguing that the World Trade Organization could expand its scope to include, it, it wants to move into the area of um, internet regulation. I personally think that the uh, International Telecommunications Union, which is another specialized agency of the UN, is where we should be putting our focus and our major dispute resolution area. And I think they could um, come to keep our idea about the internet as a place for economic and communication space and not for offensively, um, intentionally trying to injure other states. That would be um, a, a great development going forward, which the U.S. has been resisting, I think, based on lack of knowledge of how useful the ITU could be. Back to your example of the dam, the, there's no question that the Stuxnet injured Iran, and Iran was an injured party, and for the small amount of damage that it did, it could seek compensation, it could seek a remedy. Mm -hmm. The same would be true if more harm was done, if the Stuxnet ended up um, crippling, which it could have done. I mean, it, it's, that's one of the real reasons why I, I constantly say we need to keep the internet safe for communications and economic relations and to keep it a battle-free and an attack-free zone because these things are not so perfect that you couldn't end up doing a huge amount of unintended harm, such as shutting down the electric grid to the hospitals, to the power system, to the operations for a dam and cause that thing to um, uh, result in catastrophic damage. In those cases, the people that allowed that to happen, who intended and caused that to happen, 
would be held liable in international law. Again, it's hard to put these one-off attacks that are not followed up by an attempt to take territory or to use more conventional means of warfare in an ongoing fight. It's very hard to classify those kinds of one-off attacks. I'm trying to argue that Iran shouldn't view itself, even if many of its people had been killed, as being able to turn around then and attack the United States in that situation. I think it should should search for reparations and demand promises from the U.S. and other countries never to do this sort of thing again, because it's not part of an ongoing attempt to use force in the sense that we have regulated in the U.N. Charter under Article 51, an armed attack that is necessary to respond to by a responsive armed attack. No, if something like that happened, it's a one-off There's not a follow-up of the um, Sixth Fleet to take over Iran. It's a one-off for which Iran has a real argument that it's been badly injured and should get a remedy. But we really shouldn't be thinking of these kinds of incidents as the equivalent of war fighting. So so is that a matter of the number of cyber attacks? No, it's a matter of the context and responsive nature of what's happening. So when a country attacks one time and there's no sense that they're going to follow up, they did their big injury, they wanted to send a message and do something awful, but it's not part of, we want to take your territory and we're going to keep fighting until we get it, that kind of an ongoing um, war fighting context, we shouldn't treat it as war fighting. We should treat it as a very injurious attack, but it's it's disconnected from what we know to be war. War in international law is the exchange of armed fighting. And the the state that has been attacked first and has a right to defend itself is defending itself from the next attack, not the first one that started it, but the clear evidence that there's an ongoing intention to use force of whatever kind to gain a military advantage, take territory, undermine the military capacity of the um, attacked victim, and so on. If you're out of that context, you're not in war fighting, and you shouldn't be allowed to respond with military force. So Pearl Harbor is, um, is... Pearl Harbor was definitely part of Japan's intention to remove the U.S. as an adversary in the Pacific. They wanted to attack our fleet, and they were going to attack any more ships that came to the aid of, and they were trying to wipe out our Philippines forces and so on. So it was part of an ongoing effort. They weren't going to do Pearl Harbor and then uh, sit back and do nothing. If we had not responded to Pearl Harbor, we then responded and they knew we would. So this was part of an ongoing, it wasn't Pearl Harbor one and done. Yeah. So so if, if, uh, if Pearl Harbor had been accomplished like Battlestar Galactica style by infecting all of the ships with some kind of uh, virus and maybe cause some of them to sink even, um, the, the mere fact that that was done via computer. I'm trying to suggest to you, and I'm, I'm not having a lot of success, so maybe we should move on to another way to discuss this. Um, um, and I'll try to think about how I can be more persuasive in written form. We have to think about the context. It's not the thing that's being done. There's no question that if you sank all the ships through using a computer um, method, that that is anything different than if if you dropped bombs from planes. But your right to respond and the way that you should actually characterize that kind of an incident depends on the 
on, on the overall plan of the party that has sunk all those ships. If they're doing it one off and you can't accomplish anything beneficial other than revenge in a response of a similar kind, then international law says no revenge. We have a no revenge rule in international law. Hmm. I mean, that's fascinating. It, it seems yourself, but you can't just go out there. It's the same. Let me give you an analogy that I think will help. Um, and I've used this analogy a lot. It, it, it comes right back to the domestic situation. When somebody's walking down a dark street and they encounter a bully and he hits you and you go down and you don't get up and hit him again, but as soon as you recover, you go to the police. How do you describe what happened? You say you were attacked and the police say, well, did you fight? Did you respond? They're not saying whether or not you had the right to respond in that situation. And of course, your rights to respond in that situation are quite limited. You get to defend yourself. But if as a bully hit you and he's continuing to walk down the street, you don't get to run after him and pummel him. So this is actually quite close to the way we think properly, legally, about the use of force in international relations. And let me tell you, with far more import, because millions of people die if you think about these things differently. So the, the person has been attacked. They haven't fought. And there is no need in that context for the bullies walking away to attack then. It's merely revenge. And the person who attacks then loses their right of self-defense. If they can really say that defense to, that they might use in a court, the, the only time when they get to use that self-defense is when they can protect themselves at the time the bully is actually pummeling them. Then they can take defensive action, even if it means inflicting a greater amount of harm on the bully than he's inflicting on you. But there's, as you know, that's carefully litigated how much if you used excessive force yeah. and so forth. And we really hold the states of the world to the same. And with, as I said before, for far greater and more important reason, do you know how many people the United States killed when it unlawfully invaded Iraq in 2003? Several hundred thousand. We don't even know. The U.S. government didn't even want to keep count. And if, and if you continue to say, if you say that the ongoing civil war that really never ended in Iraq and has had its terrible recent outcome of the past year with the rise of ISIS out of all that carnage, it goes on and on and on. So this is all to say that in international law, when Kuwait, for example, was invaded by Iraq, the world in 1990, the world came to its defense, quickly pushed Iraq out. That's a classic example where international law says, yes, you waited five months, you tried negotiation, you tried sanctions, it didn't work. You used only that force necessary to get the Iraqis out of Kuwait. Kuwait has been a free and independent country almost 25 years. There was 100 hours of combat. The U.S. lost a total of 150 fighting personnel in that entire engagement. That is a case study that should be emulated, not what happened in Iraq in 2003. So let me use that as a transition to to talk about a, a different technology that, that came up very early in the conversation we haven't talked about yet, um, and that is killer robots. Um, by which I don't mean really cool robots. I mean robots that are designed to kill people uh, without further human intervention. I take it that 
one way to talk about why you you think or a person might think that such technology is deeply problematic is precisely because it it separates the killing from this kind of human reasoning and human judgment to restrain oneself to keep oneself from doing something merely revenge oriented um and instead um uh just let fly with a, a response of force maybe way out of proportion to what's needed is that is that a central f- form of the problem that you think with killer robot technology yes i i really do and i i i, I in the end don't think that human beings should give up this responsibility to take what is what has to be one of the hardest decisions ever i mean i'm married to a combat veteran from the gulf war he did kill people he knows he did he had to do some hand-to-hand combat there is no more difficult or troubling even in a, a righteous war where he knew he was fighting in complete um consonance with the united nations charter under lawful orders from his government of the United States, and still he's troubled by having had to do that. You can imagine how people are troubled when they have to question the legality of their government's orders to them. The um, problem with the fully autonomous um, robotic weapon, which for your listeners who are not familiar, the research is being done, and the U.S. is quite advanced in this, where not only um, will you not need a human being to operate the the um, vehicle that fires the weapon, you know, drops the bomb, shoots the missile, but the um, robot will have the intelligence, artificial intelligence, to select the target, so that beyond the initial programming, and even that may be quite minimal if computers can learn. Um, and they can take their own decisions about when it's time to kill. But one of the scenarios I talk about in my article, 21st Century Arms Control, is the initial computer programmer programs that fully autonomous robotic weapon with a set of parameters for when to use massive military force, you know, use a tactical nuke or use a bunker buster bomb. And years later, those parameters are detected by the computer and it and it does its job. Now, some of my colleagues who say that's not taking a human being out of the loop because there was always a human being who programmed it. And I say that's nonsensical. That long a period of time is not a human being any longer in the loop. So I want to see, and this maybe comes back to your points about, isn't this entirely new? Well, we've we are it's, it's again i think it's only incremental because right now we have a fair amount of automated weapons we have dumb automated weapons like landmines we leave them out in a field somewhere and there's no human being operating them anymore intercontinental ballistic missiles lock onto their target um and can't be aborted within about 20 minutes of the strike so we do have a certain amount of automaticity and and I think it's great when it's in a defensive mode like the Israeli Iron Dome which we the US pretty much developed but anyway the Iron Dome is defensive it's passive it prevents incoming it engages incoming weapons and destroys those before they hit their target that I think is a brilliant development because it's very much in that mode I talked about before 
use of force for defense, for protection, and not for revenge and offense. I feel like fiction has been engaging with this issue for a long time. I mean, these are tropes of science fiction, and I think it's because people are drawn to, on the one hand, the notion that precisely because killing is so awful uh, for the people who would do it, that that it seems like it would be better to make it more sanitized, yeah. right? It's less of torture for the people who have to do it. On the other hand, um, we know that that if we take ourselves too far away from the triggering decision, um, that there could be all kinds of unintended consequences. And again, these are the, the these are longstanding tropes of science fiction that reality is now catching up with. And so, I'm just wondering why, like, why won't why won't do you think nations will will want to I know some you've talked about in your work of some people trying to uh develop new international agreements that would try to address and, pre- and prevent um the sort of runaway development of these of these weapons but um are countries resisting that and why do you think they're resisting that if they are resisting the idea that hey let's get together and f- and make sure that we don't all do this There are definitely parties in the US that are resisting it because of this long-standing U.S. idea that we're always going to have a technological edge and therefore we should be free to exploit it. Um, so there, there are arguments being made that if the problem is not having a human being in the loop, we've got a number of U.S. international law people, military law people, usually not so much international, but a lot of military law analysts who try to say it it doesn't matter when the person's in the loop they'll be in the loop at some point and that's good enough and then you know so i've i've already responded to that and then there are the ones who say um also these are mostly us based not necessarily international law experts in fact very few are but who say that the computer can be programmed to better operate within the international law on the use of force in particular the battlefield rules governing mm. Uh, um, soldiers, the Geneva Conventions, the additional protocols, rules of customary international law, and the Hague Conventions. Those they say that you can better, uh, and a lot of, of of even scientists in the robotics area have adopted this view that they can better program their robot <laughs> to comply with the rule of distinction. For example, they'll they'll be able to detect whether that person under the cloak is a fighting person or a an innocent civilian so they say that now that's actually the the more challenging perspective um than the one that says you know as long as you have a person 15 years ago in the loop that's enough humanity in the loop so we can put that one aside and let's just talk about whether meeting the international law respecting the resort to military force and the conduct of force on the battlefield isn't going to be better with these machines than human beings. I'm, I will concede that you might come up with a better computer program than we can ever train our fighting men and women or our, our um, battle planners air campaign planners, the, the computer may always do a better job. I think that the, the phrase, you know, in the loop, human in the loop has, carries a certain amount of imprecision that, um, sure. that makes it harder. So I, what I hear you arguing is that you would like, um, uh, and, and that I favor, I think I talked about this with Frank when he was on, right? Yeah. That, that, that what a critical component here is to, when it comes to discrete acts of killing, to ensure that there is an attribute, there's an attributable inten- intentionality, right? That we can attribute intentionality to a person or to a group. And, 
And in that sense, uh, you know, kind of ironically to loop back to our discussion before, this isn't so different than, uh, at least computers and artificial intelligence don't present a problem so different than one we encountered before, which is human organizations whose decision-making is so split up that each person in that chain disclaims responsibility. And of course, you know, the rule now is you can't say you were just following orders, uh, that there, that there is a, um, we do attribute intentionality. Uh, and this would seem to me to distinguish, I don't know, maybe the ICBM, which was intentionally launched from the, certainly the landmine, right? Where there was just a general intention to kill whomever, but no specific intention, uh, to, as to a discrete act of killing. I mean, is this, is this Mary Ellen, what you really want to preserve is this, is the sense of attribution um, and to ensure that there is an intentional act uh, when it comes to killing? Absolutely. And, and I don't think um, while you may marginally improve giving up the, you call it attribution of intentionality and we might call it responsibility for that decision, that's got to remain a human decision. And I think it gives us a new perspective on a lot of a, a lot of weapons that we have currently. And if we are thinking much more carefully about the law we have on the responsibility of the uh, that right now, and this has been one of the developments of this vast new area of international criminal law around the International Criminal Court, one of those hundred international courts I mentioned earlier, that we really have developed and refined the sense that somebody, a leader of a country who goes to war unlawfully, the commander of a unit that has run amok and committed rapes or massive killing, we believe that the best way to prevent that kind of conduct in the future is to hold a human being responsible. And to pass that off to a computer program is uh, reprehensible and, and is a real retrograde step. Even if you can say that in an individual case, we can prove in lab studies that the computer will always make the better choice on the battlefield than, than those human beings. It, it's, it, the, the goal should always be to end war, to remove this massive way we kill each other and divert our resources, and making that easier on our consciences or in any other form through passing off that responsibility is is I think um, something we need to avoid now. Now I'm talking all policy, though, right? <laughs> right. Um, I have suggested that we get a new treaty, and there's one being discussed in Geneva now in connection with the certain conventional weapons treaty that the U.S. is a party to. Um, the Vatican and others have really um, expressed an interest in moving toward a uh, protocol to that treaty. Um, putting some real limits on completely autonomous weapons. But again, I will stand firm on my view that there's really nothing new under the sun. I think this is the way that we honor the most important human right that we're, that's behind all of this discussion, and that's the right to life. Maybe I think we should end here um, for now. Uh, but but on, on this note, I just want to get your, your feedback on this. So... Um, because it, it really pushes on the limits of kind of utilitarianism versus deontology. And uh, if you, just to put a, 
because uh, yeah, this is the same conversation we had with Frank. Uh, or uh, It's ultimately it. where we wound up. Yeah. This is ultimately where – I think we ultimately <laughs> – maybe it's where we want to go. So I apologize, Mary right. Ellen, if, this, if we pushed you to this point. But, um, we all want to go. Yeah, maybe that's it. But so, I, so I'm very sympathetic to the idea that we should adopt uh, or, or we should um, interpret the international law that we have and develop it in a direction that makes war less likely. Uh, partly because I think war is wrong <laughs> in general, and that's another conversation. And 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 secondarily because I think it's in, in, we increasingly will not be able to afford it. Uh, I think it's just at some point it will be inconceivable to have hostilities. But regardless of the reason, uh, I think you know that's one approach. We should frame rules that make war less likely to happen, which might mean putting in place rules that make war more costly, right? Um, and so th- I, I wonder if that's a little bit uh, or if that's somewhat behind um, what you said when, when you indicated that even if we could do studies, even if we knew for sure um, that uh, using a computer, for example, could save lives in the taking of lives. In other words, we take fewer lives or we get we get better at, at not targeting civilians. Um, nonetheless, we should make human beings make these decisions. And maybe that's because we think of human beings are the ones having to pull the triggers uh, people will be more reluctant to pull triggers. Uh, do, do you know what I'm getting at? I don't know if I'm saying I it well. I absolutely do, and, and you're, you're touching on uh, really important points, and I'm, I'm sorry we're running out of time. This is Christian's dog, Darcy, and she often joins us on our episodes. She's yes. making some noise right now. I don't really know why. But... I think it's she's feeling aggressive. Maybe it's the... Yeah, maybe, maybe the tone. Maybe it's the tone. We've been talking about feeling in war. Um, one of the reasons why I think President Obama has uh, exponentially increased the number of drone attacks over his predecessor, President Bush, is to save money. So I'm not sure that um, uh, if you're going to go down the cost road and the pure utilitarian as opposed to the pure um, qualitative, you said deontological, but um, uh, normatively um, centered way, I don't think you get um, the kind of understanding moral opposition to war that, that, that I think you just quite eloquently said should be at the heart of all of international law and, and really everything we do in law toward nonviolence and, and, and the most egregious form of violence, which is war. The, in fact, it's to save money and to make the decision to kill easier. That is really the whole point of a lot of new weapons development. So um, if you're just doing it to save money, I don't think that helps you. If you're doing it because it's the right thing, because you believe that human life and all of the natural world are precious, then you should think quite differently about using violence. All right. Indeed. Well, next time we will uh, have you back and we will, you know, maybe get more uh, uh, more specific about how to end all war <laughs> and bring about an everlasting <laughs> peace. That would be great. Because uh, well, it, it sounds like, a, it sounds like a, a life's work. It is a life's work. It's been taking me a good amount of time. And unfortunately, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll hold out hope. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.